I'm Annie Apple, and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising April. It's the most intimate sports-related conversations you will hear. Each week, we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burr, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app. HD you are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hello and a very warm welcome to everyone. I am Shrijal Grawal and welcome to Mint Startup Diaries. We have a pretty meaningful panel today, but before we dive in, it's time to do some context setting. Life is now easily a continuum. A straight line with periodic events which now look little different from one another. To our aid are available digital tools, the latest byproduct of the so-called digital transformation, which tell us what, when, how, where, who of almost everything that we do now in a repeat mode. Work, eat, read, shop, walk, exercise, entertain, play, pleasure, and so on. Never before has there been such an enhanced focus on the self or say how we have been reduced to a commodity. The commodification of self would seem to be a misnomer. If a commodity is a product, something that can be bought and sold, then in what sense can the self be commodified? According to Joseph E. Davis, a research professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, there are two possible meanings of self-commodification. According to him, the first, is that self-understanding is mediated by the consumptions of goods and images. This means that we know of who we are and we judge the quality of our inner experiences through identification with the things we buy. It's of no surprise that even in the pandemic, e-commerce companies have had record sales. A second meaning of self-commodification involves a reorganization of our normal lives and relationships on the model of market relations. This adaptation is well suited to understand the practice of personal branding, a strategy of cultivating a name and image of ourselves that we manipulate for economic gain. We are CEOs of our own companies, me.inc. To be in business today, our most important job is head marketer for the brand called you. You must have heard about the growing tribe of influencers. This is not only limited to adults. Even kids are getting into this. Look at how edtech platforms are also milking this. Kids under five to six years are being labeled as world-class coders. Welcome the world of social e-commerce. But there's an entire gamut of people selling stuff over Facebook and Instagram. These are essentially mom and pop brands leveraging self-commodification trade and selling stuff over social media platforms. To understand more on this phenomenon called social e-commerce, please help me welcome two distinguished experts who have deep dive into the subject in their latest report. It's a great combination where we have a partner to consulting firm and a veteran investor at a storied VC firm. Please help me welcome Radhika Sridharan, partner at Bain & Company, and Mohit Bhatnagar, managing director at Sapoya Capital India. Radhika and Mohit, thank you so much for putting your time and energy to this. It's my sheer pleasure and privilege to welcome you to Mint Startup Diaries. Uh, my first question to you, Radhika, 
you know, what really is social commerce? You know, I would understand, and it spaces my interview with Sachin Mansal many, many years back when he started. And I think a lot of initial work in the e-commerce or the digital e-commerce would understand has been done by these platforms called Flipkart or Amazon, for instance. They at least told India that you can actually shop digitally. They introduced something called cash and delivery for people who were not comfortable with the idea of paying digitally online payments. Then the groundwork for online commerce has really been done. The idea of buying something, not touching it physically. And we have had enough strides there and meaningful companies have been built there. Social commerce seems to be the natural progression for e-commerce, if you will. Does it really only sort of mean adding a social layer on top of e-commerce? Or does it go deeper than that? Help us decode this for the benefit of all our viewers and watchers. Um, firstly, thanks so much, uh, Shrija. That was a very interesting and thought-provoking uh, context setting that you did up front. Uh, great to be here with you today. Um, I think you you started to already set it up. You know, when you spoke about the progression from e-commerce to social commerce, um, I think what we're talking about here now in in the context of social commerce is something that uh, builds on a lot of those fundamental principles, but also starts to talk to a really distinct set of needs. Um, and therefore, you know, I, I've been asked by a lot of people whether um, social commerce either is a subset of e-commerce or whether it starts to take share from e-commerce. And I think neither of those two is the right way of looking at it. Honestly, I think social commerce starts to address uh, a distinct set of human requirements, so to speak, and therefore also plays out uh, very well in a different set of categories. And I think why we think this is uh, this is very interesting now is is because it's starting to open up a whole new set of uh, categories and types of purchases um, that might have been challenging, uh, you know, in the past. So, for instance, if I if I pick up beauty and personal care, it's it's a big category on social commerce. It's you know, social commerce itself is nascent, but BPC is one of the emerging categories. So it's everything from saying, uh, you know, I don't know how to use a particular product, but this influencer you know, teaches me how to use it, makes it desirable. Or um, there's something that I want to buy, it's from a brand that I'm not familiar with. Can I have a discussion with the seller on the other side to say, these are my specific problems. Does this product meet those needs? Uh, and therefore, you know, is it the right thing for me? Uh, it's not just about looking at uh, a catalog with a sort of one-way um, flow of information and making a purchase. The other dimension, I would say, is also that, uh, I mean, if you look at the two sides, there's the buyer side, which is what we just spoke about. But social commerce, uh, I think, is also going to democratize the seller side. Um, you know, India is a very interesting country, obviously, in, in many categories like lifestyle, apparel, for example. Um, there's a large number of uh, small sellers uh, who have distinct crafts, distinct uh, areas of specialization in different parts of the country. Uh, a lot of these are not organized brands. Uh, and so it's not as if you could, as a buyer, know that this is the kind of standard product that this brand sells at this price point. Uh, but these sellers now through the social commerce uh, you know, channels are starting to be able to get their products out to uh, a larger number of customers, tell them about what they're trying to sell. Uh, and, and, you know, really we see social commerce as being powered by small sellers. Um, so that's the other dimension that makes us very excited. So there's, there's innovation happening on the buyer side, but also, you know, the seller side is really about democratization of the small seller. 
Uh, thanks, Radhika, for that. Uh, Mohit, I come to you. Come to you now. We just heard Radhika, and she said that you know there is while there's innovation on the buyer side, it also empowers the sellers hugely. And she sort of gave the example that you know at the heart of it are basically the small and medium sort of business owners. I want to understand from you, Mohit. You represent a storied VC firm, and you are been in the business of investing for a while now. I know what is it that are the telling signals beat in your portfolio in india of sequoia or globally which are telling you that the time for social commerce has perhaps come in india what really are those i'll pick two there are many but again shija thanks for having uh, us both uh, to discuss this important topic to you in many ways we think uh, social commerce can be transformational for india in the impact that it can have over the next decade the first thing i'll talk about the demand side is you know today there are call it more than 500 million people who say good morning or good night on whatsapp to each other and are truly completely on uh, the mobile internet but uh, only 20% of them uh, call it about 100 million people actually uh, shop online so there is a whole vacuum a gap if you will of 400 million people who are on the mobile internet using it for entertainment using it for content using it for communication and are spending close to 3 hours plus every day doing those activities but are not on commerce so that's the first trend we saw within our portfolio companies is just the massive adoption massive engagement on the mobile internet but the adoption and engagement of that universe for commerce was fairly low and represents a great potential on the supply side as radhika said uh, there is a unprecedented level of digitization happening in the smbs of india mom and pop shops kirana shops offline boutiques have traditionally run their businesses in a very manual way so far but as the internet has caught the imagination of every indian they're now embracing the internet the mobile internet more specifically to try and sell online the tools that they need in order for them to sell online order management systems to deliver a good customer experience by actually shipping stuff to folks these are new ideas and new technologies that they're only now adopting and we were stunned when we saw a number of companies in our portfolio like khata book and pagar book and uh, you know other companies in india like okay credit and others who have massive bases of you know millions and millions of smbs that are actually adopting this technology so that they can improve the productivity and the efficiencies of their small businesses so on one hand you have consumers who are like the internet but haven't really bought on it yet and on the other hand you have all these suppliers who've embraced the internet with the digitization we thought that's a perfect mix for having social commerce come alive so that's probably the headline reason why we're so excited about it today only about 35 billion dollars worth of gmv which is the you know the, the the cost of the products that people buy online and of that it's a very very small number maybe one or two billion that is actually going on this social commerce trend looking forward when the report you may have seen we actually project that very soon over the next decade you'll actually see social commerce get much larger than today's e-commerce and that's because of the distributed nature of what social commerce represents there'll be millions of sellers online there'll be mil you know there'll be hundreds of thousands of suppliers who actually support the sellers and you'll be able to service the smallest towns and cities of india in tier 2 tier 3 tier 4 with the social commerce because the current set of solutions for e-commerce or online e-tailing 
don't solve for trust, which is also pointed out in the report, where the single biggest reason that bank of 400 million people haven't jumped online to purchase yet is they're not sure how their credit card might get misused. They're not sure of the quality of the product that they might receive in their house seven to 14 days later. And so that's where social commerce comes in to really try and you know build trust between the seller and the buyer in a distributed fashion. Thanks, Mohit, for laying this out so well for us. So one can understand that solving for trust is really at the heart of the problem. And, it's a, and while there's supply side innovation, there's also innovations being the demand side, right? And there is huge gap being met. I want to understand from you, Mohit, what really are the kind of different business models or monetization models that one can sort of envisage when one talks about social commerce? Sure. I'm at the very heart of it. And I'd like to take it one step uh, back and then I'll answer your question. Uh, you know, in India, on the mobile Internet, there are two types of businesses. There are content businesses. Uh, there are community businesses. I should say maybe three types. Content businesses, community businesses and commerce businesses. The content businesses, you know, have been putting out for many years, uh, you know, distributing their content, whether it's, you know, user generated or, or, or premium content out to their base of customers. So they're looking for business models and monetization models as to how do I monetize my existing base. Then there are communities that have got built on Facebook and many other platforms and folks are looking to see how they can monetize their communities. And then there are commerce businesses who traditionally have just been, you know, all about a transaction. Uh, but are looking for ways to actually use things like community and uh, and and content to drive better engagement in their in their base of customers. The reason I laid it out as these three is historically they've been separate, but going forward we're seeing a lot of blurring happen between these three. And what I mean by that is content businesses are wondering how commerce can be a way for them to monetize, and commerce businesses are wondering how content can be a way for them to actually drive for higher engagement. And that's where social commerce plays into it, is when do you actually get communities and content companies to sort of understand commerce and how do you get co commerce companies to sort of understand communities? That's when the real power of social commerce comes alive. Uh, we feel like the business models are you know, down to two, simplistically put. It's the commerce itself, which is the transaction that goes through. So depending on what you're buying or selling, there's a take rate that many of these companies benefit from. Uh, this is post paying for logistics, post paying for um, uh, you know delivery, post paying for some of the uh, back end payments. Uh, you know there's an efficient take rate that you would do at scale that makes it a very interesting business model. And then there's an element of advertising, if you want to call it that, which is if you're a small seller today, it is very hard for you to get discovered on a large platform like Amazon or Flipkart. You know you generally buy brands on those uh, platforms. But it's very hard for a small little seller in Surat or a small little carpet manufacturer somewhere to get discovered on one of these large destination e-commerce sites. So they will use companies in the social commerce space, for example, a company like Misho, which we are involved with, to try and get discovered on that. And in return for getting discovered, there'd be a, 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 an advertising business model that they would then pay to a platform like Misho in order for that discovery process to happen. So commerce and advertising. Thanks, Mohit. I think that's sort of very well laid out. I think it sort of it just sort of breaks down the entire 
thinking much better. I sort of come to you now, Radhika. We just heard from Mohit in terms of different kind of business models, and he sort of very categorically mentioned that largely the two buckets: one is the content part of it, or the advertising part of it; another is the commerce part of the transaction part of it. I want to understand from you in your report, you have really projected some very large numbers for social commerce and that to achieve in the next five years. So, are there any global comparisons, if you will? That India can perhaps follow for the exponential growth, and if at all there is, what should be the levers that one needs to put in place for this? Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, firstly, I would I would say that uh, you know we discussed the fact that social commerce actually is a fairly wide spectrum uh, of different types of activities and behaviors. Uh, and I think as you look at uh, the paths that other countries have followed, whether it's China or Southeast Asia, where social commerce has actually been developing for a while, uh, it's our belief that those models are not necessarily going to be uh, developing in exactly the same way in India. You'll see flavors uh, of uh, of the same kinds of uh, behaviors, though. Uh, and therefore, with that out of the way, um, there are a few examples that uh, everybody talks about. Of course, uh, one example that's particularly interesting that we've spoken about in the report as well is uh, Pindodo, uh, which is the, a group buying platform which is based in China. And I think one of the really interesting things about Pindodo is how they were able to dramatically increase their the number of people who could effectively be targeted through online commerce of any, any sort, going much deeper into China, so going into lower tiers of cities, where affordability was more of a constraint uh, and where you really needed to be very, very sharp on pricing. Uh, the way they were able to do that was because they had this group buying model in place that essentially said that if you buy one product, you get it at a certain price. But if you're able to aggregate a group uh, of, let's say, five or 10 people, then you get a substantial discount. But if you think about it from the perspective of the platform itself, what that meant was instead of shipping one product and incurring a logistics cost to get it from, let's say, one of the main cities to uh, a small interior part of China, you were now aggregating that across a much larger basket. And therefore, the economics work out for both. So it works out for the platform as well as for the for the buyer. Now, that was transformational because it obviously, like I said, opened up a much larger market. Um, there are uh, similar types of models uh, that, we uh, that, that we're seeing starting to get built out in India. So uh, the group buying concept has emerged here. Um, Mall 91 is an example, for instance. Uh, but it's it's something that needs to, uh, I think, get built out, um, you know, in a more structured manner, which then actually brings me to the second question, um, which is what do we see as being uh, the key enablers uh, to making this happen? Uh, I think one uh, key enabler, of course, is going to be uh, what happens in terms of logistics costs, shipment costs. This is uh, a metric that we've been looking at uh, over the past few years in India. Obviously, it's been coming down year on year as uh, all of the both the you know the dedicated e-commerce platforms as well as third-party uh, logistics providers built out uh, a larger network, improved their drop densities, and so on. Uh, costs have been coming down, uh, but I'm sure um, Mohit will also uh, you know have a view on this. Logistics cost does remain one of the the biggest uh, areas that needs to be cracked. And I think as we, uh, it's it's a little bit of you know as as the as demand uh, gets built out, it means that uh, in parallel supply innovations will also happen to drive down that uh, that number. 
The second is, uh, as you think about, uh, I mean, if, if you think about the experience of buying on an e-commerce platform, for example, Flipkart, Amazon, uh, you have a very seamless end-to-end -end experience for, uh, for the customer, where they're able to um, discover products, um, find out more about them through the means of the catalog, make a payment, and then expect the product to actually get shipped to them. Uh, without really too much of a fuss. So the customer, without having to leave the platform, is able to go through this entire series of, uh, of steps and then complete their transaction. Um, as we look at social commerce today, some of that end-to-end -end enablement uh, of the, the commerce process has not yet happened. And that's because we're still in the early stages. Uh, and so you might well have, for example, product discovery happening on one platform. So the customer, let's say, is on Facebook, discovers products from a seller through a group. Um, and then the seller says, uh, to continue this conversation, come over to WhatsApp or you know a, a messenger message, messaging platform. Um, the, the transaction then gets completed there, but uh, because payments are not yet integrated, uh, or at least weren't um, until recently, uh, you needed to uh, then you know use a separate payment link, make a payment, or have a COD kind of construct. Uh, and then, of course, there was no efficient way for uh, the seller to communicate to the buyer what the status of the shipment was. And if you think about the expectations that have now been built into all of us as consumers, um, you expect that when you're buying something online, you should be able to track it, uh, track its progress until it reaches you. Um, that today, for example, is not universally possible because uh, a lot of these service providers who are uh, who sort of provide different parts of, of the, the commerce experience are disjointed. Uh, but, but again, these uh, are starting to get built out in pieces um, as if, if you were to look at Misho, for instance, you know, Misho has uh, solved for that integrated uh, experience. And we believe that there will be more innovation that happens as uh, the market opportunity in this space also opens up. Uh, thanks, Radhika, for this. I come to you now, Mohit. Uh, you know, we have all seen this sort of play out in e-commerce 1.0, if you will, if social commerce is really being labeled as the next progression for online e-commerce, the digital commerce. And I remember, uh, you know, the, this entire line of VCs behind Flipkart and Snapdeal, but the modes of differentiation were very thin, right? One as a consumer could not figure out, I mean, what's the difference between the Flipkart or Shopclues or uh, Snapdeal, for instance. Often the one who had the maximum capital ultimately became the differentiator. In terms of product, very little differentiation, almost the home page of all the companies look similar. From a consumer's perspective, it was a great time. VCs were throwing discounts, it was all funded by them. So I think for them, the differentiation really was the bottom pricing. I want to understand the same phenomenon from when we talk about social commerce, at least from a consumer's perspective, the so-called influencers look similar to me from a distance. And if it's all about only coming on a Facebook or an Instagram or WhatsApp or a WeChat, we're leveraging the power of the big tech really here. And if you are distinguishing between one company to the other for investing, I mean, what really are the investable differences and how big or thick can they really be the more differentiation for social commerce? Shija, I think uh, the first thing to appreciate is in order to deliver a very simple no-brainer experience to a consumer, don't underestimate the amount of complexity that goes into the business and the operations to make that actually happen. Uh, 
if I look at a business like Misho, for example, uh, it is a non-trivial task to solve for a very diverse and a fresh set of selection every day so that your micro entrepreneurs who come to the Misho platform every day are constantly going through a new catalog that is relevant to them at a price point that is uh, relevant for them to sell and is at a quality that they are going to be proud of when their customers get it. And the ability to sort of do that all the way from, you know, Ladakh down to, to Tamil Nadu, catering to, you know, all the different tastes that India has and possesses is a non-trivial task. As you go and build this business on the supply side, where your North Star is selection, you will realize that the moats you have to build on the supply side are considerable. First, it's actually just the diversity of the supply. Second is the quality management that you have to put in to ensure that the supply sort of meets your standards. Third is the geographical diversity you need to have in the supply so that the logistics times to for it to reach your customer are within the right uh, sort of set of frames. And all of this is changing every day, every week, as seasons come and go, as Diwali comes and goes, as different sort of fashion trends come and go. So this is a non-trivial task to actually build out the supply side, which will separate out the winners from the losers. Uh, the second thing I'll tell you is uh, don't underestimate price to be a commodity. In order to do what Radhika said earlier is incredibly important. If you truly want to service the 400 million people who are online in India, but are not online shoppers in India, the only way you can do it is if you can actually drop the price in a sustainable manner for your own business for them to come onto the internet platform to buy. Because otherwise it's always going to be easy enough for you to go just to the roadside, you know, uh, the shop next to your house to go purchase uh, the garment. The only reason you will do it online if it, it is much more convenient and at a price point that doesn't urge you to go out and go and feel the fabric and sort of have it delivered to your house five or seven days later. So price is incredibly strategic. And how do these companies do it? It's with the scale that Radhika was talking about. Today, most of India who is in tier three, tier four, tier, you know, even lower, smaller towns, villages is not buying online because of the trust factor that we spoke to earlier. If you bring millions of those consumers online through their friends and family who serve as the social influencers, like you called it, the scale, the tens of millions of people that you now can get an aggregate demand from and then go get a service from your supplier side is non-trivial. That allows you to sort of drop the prices from the supply side, use things like contract manufacturing and do things to actually ensure that you have the lowest cost product that is available to your micro entrepreneurs to go on and sell to the small towns and villages uh, that sort of are looking for that price point. And the moment you succeed on that and whatever profits you make, you put that right back into the business. And once again, sort of drop price so that you can keep on trying to drop price to a point so that you can get the next slab of users to come join in here. So I'll point out two things to you, which is the supply side complexity for selection and the strategic nature of how do you sort of consistently keep dropping price of the products that are available on your platform so that you bring on new waves of consumers onto your platform. Very hard to do, easy to speak of.
<laughs> very hard to do easy to speak of and that brings the next question then mohit perhaps take us through perhaps two or three key challenges for instance what misho faced in its initial days to create us right now which could perhaps serve as practical examples for other startup founders who are watching this or listening to this sure i'll take this year's examples there are many but i'll just take this year's uh, you know march april of this year uh, covid hits we're in lockdown uh misho service is non essential so their business comes to a grinding halt because you can't deliver anything to anyone you're not allowed to there's no one on the roads there's no there's no transportation the team puts its head together and says when lockdown comes out and when we come out of lockdown how do we sort of deal with the situation and they realize that because their sellers are all the small sellers this is the group that will be under the most financial pressure if you think about it so the level of churn of their suppliers the financial viability of their suppliers was in great question this year in covid as you can imagine with a lot of small businesses in india the reaction from the misho team was incredible they essentially went out and uh, said how do we basically go make sure that we actually you know enhance our supply base immensely to make up for all the suppliers that may actually not last or survive this financial cycle how do we make sure that this different parts of the country come out of lockdown my traditional jaipur razai supplier who was doing it for me for the entire country may be in lockdown so how do i go diversify my supplier base to be now more regional in each state so that i can supply from everywhere to everywhere so the sheer depth that misho went into to actually move from a few suppliers that they were dependent on to a much larger variety of sub suppliers and suppliers in each category and each sub category is one big learning and one big challenge again easy to talk about but hard to sort of implement and execute maintaining the quality and the price point and the availability non trivial task a second large challenge that is faced by the company this year is if you have micro entrepreneurs millions of housewives who are using the misho platform to convince their friends and families to buy from them the single biggest thing they were worried about this year is i hope i'm not putting my friends and family into trouble when a package uh reaches them with all the covid scare and paranoia all around so how do you convince your micro entrepreneurs on your platform to see the level of hygiene and the the sanitization that you're using in the warehouses that you use to make sure that these packages are going to be safe to just give them the strength and the trust that they should not you know stop their business but carry on shipping uh through you to their friends and family so these were two just simple examples of sort of building a very trusting community with the micro entrepreneurs during these tough crisis times in order for them to come back even though your business had sort of stopped during the lockdown and as a result of all of these and many other things that misho has done misho is now at much higher levels of sales than pre covid levels because the larger wave that has happened is more people are buying online than they were before we all started this covid uh, you know in the pre covid world so net beneficiary from everything in covid but there were heavy times and lots of hard work and lessons to be learned along the way yeah so the power of community is extremely strong and we have really come seen this in the pandemic coming to its own the community building This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. I'm Annie 
Apple, and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising a Pro. It's the most intimate sports-related conversations you will hear. Each week, we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burrow, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app.